0: There's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girls' night, we have to get our fix. And that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or a dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kelly's killer popcorn.com for american-made small batch delicious popcorn i might be vegetarian but that doesn't mean i can't enjoy a good spice rub my favorite place to get them is smoke bros a veteran owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs spice blends and seasonings Psst, guys you can even put it on your popcorn My favorites are Honey Badger because he doesn't give a bleep and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out SmokedBros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives Podcast... Quentin and Roger completed their mission in The Last Run.
1: If Bogart were able to make movies in the 70s, I can totally see Bogart playing this role.
0: Broke the fourth wall in Rustler's Rhapsody. It's almost a weird genre take on
1: Groundhog Day.
0: And took us on a journey in The Jet Benny Show.
1: Rochester, Rochester, stop! Rochester, stop. <laughs> Rochester, enough! Rochester, get a hold of yourself.
0: And now we bring you the after show, your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm Rochester. I, I mean Gala Avery. On today's episode of the After Show, I've got part five of my interview with Roger. Miss part four make sure to go back to After Show episode 16 so you don't miss a thing. But before we get into part five of the interview, I've got plenty from Quentin and Roger about The Last Run, Rustler's Rhapsody and The Jet Benny Show. Let's get into it, shall we? One thing that we always love to discuss with each other is what the video transfer looks like. As you guys know, The Last Run was a bootleg tape and I was unable to get my hands on one at the time of recording. So, like most of my viewing experiences, this one had to be streamed. Listen in as we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly about streaming transfers. So I always find myself complaining, and Roger will tell you this is true, whenever I stream something, if the quality of blacks in the transfer are milky and they also are just like pixelated and I hate it. Like I'm always just, it makes me really upset.
2: Yeah. Video has uh, compression video. When compressed has a really tough time with large fields of black, which when done on an analog tape, those fields are part of a sine wave and you, and it, it's no more or less information. Whereas. And
1: not only that, that, that kind of filmmaking is also leaning into a long black dissolve. Yeah. Right.
2: Yes. <laughs> on digital, all of those blacks end up tiling.
0: Yeah. And I, Hate that. But I'm going to say this transfer on Amazon, you guys. I was really shocked. I'm going to say it. Zooey mama. This was like actually, the transfer is so gorgeous. Mm. And the quality of the blacks on screen and the blue of the ocean in that opening scene with the boat, the blue is like glittering and it is just gorgeous. So if you can't get your hands on this VHS tape on the bootleg, I'm going
1: to look, I'm going to, I'm I'm willing to bet that yours probably. Yeah, looks better. Because I have a 16 millimeter print of the last oh, run. Oh, do you? Have you and watched it, it? Yeah, and it looks gorgeous. It, it, it looks gorgeous. That's exciting. And this tape looked really, really terrific. But I, no, I also kind of like this too. So this is not a negative. I'm just talking about the different quality. But the tape does have I, uh, uh, one one by the fact that it's a videotape and the one the fact that it's a second generation videotape. It does look like this beautiful photograph and somebody just took a razor blade and just kind of scraped off a little of the beauty, just a little of the beauty. Now I kind of like that look as well, because what's, uh, you you, you scrape off the beautiful shine. All right. Of that ocean and Mm -hmm. of that light through the trees and everything. And then you have this, something softer underneath. That's kind of cool. I'm not, I'm sure yours is better. All right. Like I'm sure my 16 is better. But that's still kind of a cool fucking well, look. Yeah. Thing is- yeah. Don't. Would you agree, Roger? Yeah.
2: I, I. 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 I love the look of this movie. Yeah. I mean, on, on your second generation yeah. bootleg. <laughs> I again, I haven't seen it, but yeah. to me, that's the look that Sven Nickfist was going for. Yeah. Yeah. He foresaw the degenerations yeah. necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yes, it very well. Well. Well said. Yeah. The razor blade scrapes the sh- the sparkle. Yeah, out of the sparkle out of the ocean. (laughs) The sparkle out of the sunlight.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, that was a nice surprise. I was super curious to hear what the quality of the bootleg tapes transfer was like. I have to ask, what was the transfer like? That was fine. Was it yeah, fun? like, it was, like it was any hard. other tape? Like, it yeah, was yeah,
1: no, a no, good? It, no, it did. They, they, uh, uh, they, re, they, they recorded it. They recorded it
2: on good tape in
1: a four hour speed. All right. It made uh, great
2: use of, there was uh, all of Sven Nickvist's beautiful cinematography. Yeah. Looked amazing. It
1: looked, yeah, it, it looked really good. In fact, it was one of those, uh, an example of what we've, what we've talked about before in the past. Uh, uh, I think it, uh, was probably a, a a scope film, but then they, uh, but the Panascam was very artfully done. So like you never really noticed it. You never really noticed any yeah. compromise.
2: There was one kind of slightly wonky optical zoom. Oh yeah. There
1: was that. Where, I was that. It was, Although the, uh, 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 yeah, that weird, uh, they
2: didn't have their Z formula worked out and they were yeah. just doing no, X, that was XY moves in. It was kind yeah, of a yeah, strange yeah. little, N-n-n-n-n-n. that was a little, funky. no. that was
1: a little bit, <laughs> no, that was like the camera move was like, a. uh, a miss Pac-Man controller with a stuck <laughs> stick,
2: <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> no. Other than that, it, it was fantastic. And the movie is a slightly monochromatic film. I mean, it's by yeah. by design, mm-hmm. and so well, it, has, it, it uh, actually benefits. It has,
1: it has great. It has you know great browns. It has great dulled greens yeah. because they're driving through the uh, yeah. countryside of Spain and then, and then just beautiful like uh, or Portugal oh Spain, Spain, yeah, Spain, it's, Spain yeah. it's
2: actually Spain on yeah. the uh, Atlantic side of the ocean
1: and then a constant orange glow or right, you know from uh, uh, the European sun Yeah, you know cascading through
0: since then I've managed to get myself a bootleg of the last run courtesy of Griffin Souter. you can find his page on Instagram at MacBook Thighs he did a really excellent job creating the tape in the box. Make sure to go check out our Counter Talk post available on our website, videoarchivespodcast.com to see pictures of my bootleg. We are typically pretty complimentary about the films that appear on the podcast, but we do acknowledge that these films are not without their faults. Quentin lets us know the one thing that he thinks could have been done better in Rustler's Rhapsody.
1: Frankly, to tell you the truth, I think the only thing that they kind of fall asleep on a little bit is in dealing with Wildfire the Horse, because if you've watched Roy Rogers and Trigger and you've seen the way William Whitney has directed Trigger, Trig- you know, a Trigger character should almost be the third or second lead, if not the second lead of the film. And you could actually have so much fun yeah. with, you know, the intelligence that Trigger is supposed to have.
2: You're right. that That is <laughs> that is one place where they didn't capitalize fully on it. They do have a, a few moments of like, you know, whistling and the horse comes running. and
1: yeah. Well, th- they definitely have that. But it's like, I mean, but Trigger is sold as, I mean do a a true parody of Trigger, Trigger could be making coffee for Rex. (laughs) (laughs) The real Trigger could make you coffee, you like you could cook breakfast.
0: (laughs) But Quentin isn't the only one. Roger comes in hot with his opinion on what Rustler's Rhapsody could have done to make him like the movie even more.
2: Now, the one thing I I kind of would have liked, Mm -hmm. because I... I think they could have done better, mm-hmm. even though it's serviceable and it's fine, is the beginning where it literally is just the screenwriter or... Just
0: no, that's that's not... The, it's the... um The
2: narrator. No,
0: it's the sidekick. It's the sidekick. That's oh, a, it's
2: the sidekick. It's the sidekick who's narrating. So, like, just saying, well, what if it was, you know, uh, like this? And then suddenly, broof, we just switch to it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more of a... I don't want to say real world, because that's a ridiculous thing to say, Mm -hmm. but something a little bit more practical reality, like Purple Rose of Cairo comes to mind. Actually, Mm -hmm. Woody Allen could have made this movie in some ways. I I could have watched a version of this movie no. no, but
1: Wait, hold it now. Okay, I hear what you're saying. I I hear exactly what you're saying. But it wasn't the idea to take Rex O'Hurlihan out of the movies he was in and stick him in the real world. Like the no, character. It's to is, mash
2: him into the movies
1: yeah. it, of it, it, it's to, it, other it, movie genres. Yes, exactly. That's it. It's to take him out of the confectionery world of 40s. Kitty matinee westerns and stick him in Pat Garrett
2: and Billy the Kid. Right, I guess what I guess what I'm getting at, I I guess wish the, the, oh, yeah. the mechanics you can, you can, of getting can there. You tell
1: the movie when he shoots the guy and he guy and he falls in slow motion <laughs> that, that Rex O'Hurlan has never seen them die in slow motion before. Yeah, when they when they <laughs> literally
2: do a peck and paw. when they do a
1: peck and paw, he's a little surprised. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's when the movie is singing. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. by is by that point.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite discussions from this episode got left on the cutting room floor, so I'm glad to be able to feature it today. Up next, Quentin tells us a story about a man recalling seeing the Cowboys for a nickel. As
1: a matter of fact, I had a a friend of mine, he was writing a script about the South, and so he drove, uh, he took a drive to the South and was just kind of hanging out in these little old towns, and he met this old guy, he met this old guy on the street, and there was a movie theater there, and it had been—it was closed. It, it went out of business, been boarded up for a long time. But the remnants of it was still there. And he's talking to this old guy, and he's just having a conversation with him. And then the guy goes, "Yeah, you see that theater over there? I used to go see the Cowboys for a nickel back when I was a boy." You know, and i mentioned to him about William Whitney, who's one of my favorite directors, who specialized in directing these movies, you know? And uh, he goes, oh yeah, well, a friend of mine introduced me to one. Well, I don't know who directed any of them movies. But the point being was interesting. He didn't call them the movies. He goes, when you were a kid, you went, you were paying to see the Cowboys. You paid the Mm -hmm. Cowboys for a nickel. You saw the Cowboys for a nickel. And then my friend says, yeah, that's a damn shame. You know, meaning that the theater's closing. Oh, it's more than a shame, son. (laughs)
0: In the short time between viewing the movie and recording the episode, we tried to do as much research as we can. Believing that there was a connection between Hopalong Cassidy and Wrestler's Rhapsody, I did some research on that character. As you heard in the main episode, Quentin debunked my theory. However, I still had to share this one piece of history that I found about the city that I love. One thing, that, because I was doing this Hopalong Cassidy research, Mm -hmm. I'll just tell you guys just for fun. So Hopalong Cassidy, there was a short-lived amusement park in Venice Beach Mm -hmm. dedicated to the character. It was called Hoppyland. Venice Amusement Pier was closed in 1946, and in 1951, Hoppyland was opened. Hopalong Cassidy would make frequent appearances, encourage kids to drink their milk, eat their veggies, mind their manners, obey their parents. That was the Hoppy Code of Conduct. But Hoppyland was not very popular. And it competed with the nearby Ocean Park Pier and was closed down in 1951. <laughs> but Hoppyland, which also included the 30-acre Los Angeles Lake, became what we know today as Marina Del Rey. Oh, wow. So that's Hoppyland. Really? That's the
2: origin of Marina
0: Del Rey. Yeah, that's wow. the origin of Marina <laughs> Del Rey. And Th- That actually, this that should all be on the show. Well, I'll, I'll keep this because this will, I can put an after show. But um, also at 59 minutes in the last run, Tony Musante calls George C. Scott Hopalong.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> citing him as Hopalong Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, right on.
0: The Jet Benny Show was certainly a weird one. Listen in as Quentin shares his first encounter with the film.
1: Uh, I never saw it in a video store before, but the only reason I rem- the only reason I even know that it exists, is because I remember it in the Baker Taylor catalog which was uh, the, the catalog that you uh, you bought your videos from the distributors.
2: Yeah, it was like the listing of everything and the prices and then yeah, you'd yeah. go through it and you figure out what you wanted yeah. you'd call Baker Taylor. Yeah,
1: and- yeah, exactly. He's okay, we want three copies of uh, Nadine and we want five copies of Russell's Rhapsody and we want six copies. We, did
2: we get three copies of Nadine? <laughs> yeah, we did. Unfortunately, <laughs> I Lord. bought three.
1: I, I <laughs> like Nadine, but I, I overestimated uh, the demand. The, the demand. Uh, uh, but I bought one of those 10 ones for the $10 myself. Uh, but, um, uh, So I remember seeing the ad that's on the uh, in the full page ad in the Baker Taylor got the Jet Benny Show. What the hell is that? And I never knew the answer. They they didn't even make it clear exactly what it is, other than the poster and any more than any more than the cover of the tape makes it clear what it is. uh, uh, It didn't. Yeah, the cover of the the, the back of it makes it a little bit more clear, but the front doesn't. So uh, I didn't think much about it.
0: We didn't talk much about the history of The Jet Benny Show on the main episode, but after doing a little research, we found a post from 2001 on a now-dead website devoted to Super 8 filmmaking. In this post, director Roger Evans gives his account on how The Jet Benny Show was made. I had been working for years with a local theater group called Main Street Theater in Houston, Texas. One of its more talented members was a guy named Steve Norman that bore a funny resemblance to a sort of caricature of Jack Benny, one of my favorite comedians. Benny had made a variety of low-budget theme-based movies like Buck Benny Rides Again, etc. I thought, what if Benny had lived into the Star Wars era and had done a science fiction film? Thus, The Jet Benny Show was born. We shot it across several summers, and keeping everyone interested in the project, including me, was tough. The guy that played Rochester, the black Android co-pilot, actually quit after shooting a variety of key scenes. Unbelievably, he had never heard of Jack Benny or Rochester, and was surprised to find that his part was less than flattering to his constituency, even though it was all in fun. We wrote in a silly plot device about a rubber mask to cover the change in personnel and kept hacking away at the film piece by piece. We had originally envisioned shooting it in 16mm Kodachrome for that super saturated 50s look then decided that Super 8 Kodachrome 40 would be cheaper and would add to the overall panache of the movie. I cut the original using a Sero splicer and then transferred to a three-quarter inch video using a non telesine Elmo HD 1200. The flicker didn't matter because I was just using video to work out the sound. I fed a tone through the contact switch of the projector and recorded the resulting pulse on one open track of a three-quarter inch tape along with the picture. Then I made dubs and worked out my sound. Later, I ran the original three-quarter-inch tape with the pulse on one track and sound effects on the other in sync with another three-quarter-inch tape containing voice on one track and music on the other while mixing it all down to Super 8 Sound Full Coat Recorder. This would later be transferred to a Soundstripe print. I finished the mix only to find that Kodak had stopped making my beloved Kodachrome Super 8 prints. I poked around the Kodak directory until I got a hold of the head engineer of the Kodak lab. He checked, and they had just enough stock to print the movie, but not enough to do any tests. I told him to take his best shot and sent him the film. Jet Benny was the last Kodachrome print that Kodak ever produced, as far as I know. Later, I won the Lawrence Kassin Award at the Ann Arbor Film Festival. That was my second win there. I had won two years previous with a short film called Chains. The sponsor of the festival called and said they wanted to keep Jet Benny for midnight movie showings. It played there every week for about three or four months. There was even a Jet Benny fan club that I used to get mail from. Weird. Later, I read about a company called United Entertainment in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They had pioneered the direct-to-video low-budget feature market, and I checked out some of their movies. Jet Benny has many flaws, but made some of their stuff look like war and peace. I hopped on a plane and went up unannounced to meet with them. I sat in their lobby for the entire day. Finally, just as their receptionist was closing up her purse to leave— The head of the company finally had pity on me and let me set up my Elmo projector, yes, I took it with me, in their conference room. I even came prepped with a briefcase that I had put a speaker in and a small screen cut from an illustration board velcro to the side of a briefcase. Yes, I was a nerd in grade school. The boss watched only about five minutes and then said dryly, okay, that's enough, and then he left the room. I felt pretty rejected and began the slow process of rewinding the film. I had started putting away the briefcase screen assembly when the boss reappeared with about half a dozen department heads. They all sat down and proceeded to watch the entire film. I left there with a contract to direct one of their horror films and a distribution deal for Jet Benny. There was no one ranking Super 8 that we could find, so Michael Hinton at the Informat in San Francisco blew up the entire film to 16mm negative, which was then ranked like normal. I was written about in two different articles in American Cinematographer regarding Super 8 production and later sold the rights for Jet Benny to Super 8 Sound. I still get mail and email from the Jet Benny fans. Up until about a year and a half ago, there used to be a Jet Benny website. In all, my epitaph will probably read, here lies the man that made Jet Benny. All of my other efforts will probably fade to obscurity. Life is funny that way. Before we head into the interview with Roger, listen to this awesome discussion between Quentin and Roger about Damnation Alley.
1: You being a fan of Damnation Alley, I have a very interesting story to tell you that I was lucky enough to hit upon. So, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, 12 years ago, uh, during that time where they're remaking. Every title that has any kind of pop culture purchase whatsoever, whether they like the movie or not, that period was going on. And so naturally, Damnation Alley was brought up as an idea to be remade. And so they uh, so they signed uh, 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 Scott Rosenberg, the Things yeah. to Do in Denver When You're Dead guy, to produce it and write it. And then the guy that they were uh, they talked to about directing it was Josh Trank before Fantastic Four, ah. before Fantastic Four and uh, after Chronicles. So they approached him and he was really into it. He ended up walking away from the project because they didn't like the first – he liked the first movie. That's why he wanted to do it. They didn't like the first especially Scott Rosenberg, like, oh, it's a piece of shit, you know. Uh, uh, and so they wanted to just dump everything, and then just kind of go from go from scratch. So their idea that they had was okay. Forget about all those characters from the first movie. It's been as long enough. Time has passed. You know, it's been twenty years, thirty years, forty years, and so like an entire gener, a you know, couple generations have grown have grown up under uh, 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 underground. Mm-hmm. And now these young people have now emerged from underground, and then they have, like, some supersonic version of the truck <laughs> that's more of a tank. Mm-hmm. And they're able to uh, traverse uh, the, the surface level and explore for the very first time in, in a way that you know, no, no humans have, you know, in the last 50 years, explore the, the surface of the Earth. You know the radiation is
2: has mm-hmm. subsided dis- just enough, to. just en-
1: just enough for finally the first group of humans in 50 years can can explore up above. And naturally, it's a bunch of teenagers. All right, so Josh Trank's idea. He goes, "Well, here's why I walked away. One, they I had an idea, and when they didn't want to do my idea, and they they entertained it for a while, but when they finally said no to my idea, that's when I said no to them." Because the, the reason to do it was this reason. So just like it is in their idea, it's like, you know, movie came out in 1977. So since 1977, the same amount of time that's passed since 1977 passes in the damnation alley time. And then naturally these teenagers show up exactly when there's some supersonic kind of tank that they're exploring the world. Halfway through the movie they come across Jan Michael Vincent in the original damnation
2: alley truck. Well, like he's out there still. <laughs> he's still
1: out there. He's holding the only, on by his wits. He's the only one left. <laughs> I think maybe even Jan Michael Vincent might have lost a, might have lost his leg by that. Remember he like, lost a leg. Yeah, you he, he worked
2: it into the movie. He might be a
1: one-legged <laughs> fucking dude. <laughs> Driving In, in the, fact,
2: Jan Michael Vincent at that time, driving in the, the f- way he was, was an asset to yes, the movie. the Vietnam
1: <laughs> flock jacket, all right? You, you, you know, Mad Max. Talk about Mad Max. Mad Mad Jan Michael, all right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> driving the fucking old ass. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Canvassy middle section. The same one you yeah. can rent on
1: Cahuenga. The same one you can rent <laughs> the same one that we passed every time we went to on Kawanga. <laughs> And I was like, oh, man, that's such a great idea. I can't believe they didn't want to do that.
2: That sounds amazing. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds amazing. What's funny is I had an idea at one point to to do a sequel to Big Wednesday. Oh, you did, huh? And it was about a bunch of kind of modern day surfers. Uh And they're on the, uh, you know, they're surfing the beach or whatever. Yeah. And this bum kind of guy gets like (laughs) hit by a car on PCH while they're all there, maybe by one of them. And before he dies, and we realize, Oh my God, it's Jan Michael Vincent. (laughs) It's his character. He's still around on the beach. He's just like living. He's now the bum guy. Yeah. 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 And he's been hit and he tells them just as he's dying about this mythical surf spot Mm. in off the coast of Uh South America somewhere. And the rest of the movie is like this road trip down Uh down there, but it was the initiate the, the, It, it was sort of like that's where the big waves still roll right, yeah, yeah, yeah. in this mythical mm-hmm. offshore location. Anyhow, it was another Jan Michael Vincent thing <laughs> where just
1: use Jan Michael well, as well, he is. Yeah, well, frankly, in that time. he doesn't have to be Matt Hooper in that. He could just be Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, they just killed Jan Michael Vincent. And before he dies, you know, he goes, oh, by the way, <laughs> if you go up the coast a little bit.
2: <laughs> Great surf spot.
0: Now, on to the discussion with Roger, right after a word from our sponsors. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. In this next segment, Roger and I discuss the art of adaptation. Roger talks about adapting projects like Black Hole, where he takes his inspiration from when working with material, and a brief discussion on Dawn of the Dead. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. You've adapted books, and you've adapted video games. I think you're pretty well known by fans for adapting video games. Like, it's kind of in your wheelhouse.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's like, I've, I, I, I like all things. I, some confused fan asked me at a Q&A once, like, like, can't figure you out. You're like, like you're doing Beowulf, and then you do Silent Hill. Like
0: you've adapted a lot.
2: Yeah, and it seems like in every field I piss somebody off. You know, it's like
0: it's impossible not to, especially nowadays. Yeah, so, it's
2: like if you do a video game adaptation, you're going to piss people off. If you do a, uh, an academic literary adaptation, you're going to piss some people off. <laughs> if you <laughs> adapt anything, actually, you're gonna.
0: yeah. So when adapting material, what's your favorite medium to adapt from?
2: uh, books for certain. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I love adapting and I've adapted many more than I've ever made, um, or had produced, but I, I adore adapting somebody else's material because, um, I get to climb inside their head and then disassemble it and try to understand it. Like Neil Gaiman and I adapted Black Hole, Mm -hmm. the Charles Burns, um, graphic novel. And um, it has a kind of nonlinear structure, and so in you know, which I did, which even though the nonlinear structure is there, it it hides kind of a a, a massive flaw inside of the writing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which the nonlinear structure hides, which is something I know very well. Like you can actually hide your deficiencies by doing unusual structure.
0: <laughs> it makes it interesting. Well, it,
2: yeah, and um, and so. I never really would have understood that if I hadn't, like, had to completely take it apart. It's like Black Hole – when you adapt a book, it's like you're taking an engine that already works. Like, that engine works. The engine for Black Hole is a perfect running engine. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to take it, and it's not going to be that anymore. It's not going to be that graphic novel. It has to become a movie now. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, um, frequently what happens is people – Especially now, they believe that because of canon, like we have to uh, be true to it. And mm-hmm. you end up with Harry Potter m- movies that are like nine hours long because they're afraid to change the shape of the table from being squared around or whatever. And they end up having to put in every detail to appease everybody. And you end up making something that's just a slave to the original material. And it might be canonically accurate, but it's not always true. True in spirit. Like the spirit is what's most important to capture. Like the, the ghost inside the, the the physical form. Like the mm-hmm. the soul is what's elusive. And the soul is what you're chasing when you're trying to adapt something. And so um, you take this engine and then you're like, okay, I'm going to disassemble it. And you completely take it apart. And then you look at all the parts and you study them. And you start doing all these – as you're taking it apart – and maybe you take it apart and put it back together even sometime, a few times. Mm-hmm. And as you're taking it apart, you're, like, disassembling it and you're studying all of the pieces and you're figuring out, oh, God, you don't even need that piece. And, no, well, you really should have had an, some support there for that piece. And you start, like, making discoveries that as you translate it to a new medium, which is cinema, which works differently than a graphic novel, it's completely a different uh, experience, you can rebuild that engine into a new engine. There's a movie called Flight of the Phoenix – that I love. It's actually one of the movies I would love to talk about. Um uh with Jimmy Stewart. And um is it with Jimmy Stewart? Yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> my brain. Anyhow, um too much information. Yeah, too much information. Um so anyhow uh it takes place. It's an airplane full of men. They're flying over the Sahara Desert and the plane crashes. Mm-hmm. And the, the, something happens to the airplane. It crashes in the desert. They are now in a hostile environment. They have limited resources. They are in the center of the Sahara. Um, I can't remember what the exact situation is, but like, you know, they're they're alone and trapped. And it's not likely they're going to be found. And so um, there's two schools of thought. We can either hike out of here. Or we can wait until somebody finds us and it's, it'll – they're going to find the plane a lot easier than they're going to find us. Mm-hmm. And um, and plus since, you know, somebody will eventually come for us. And so sure enough, you know, this creates stresses among the men and they start splitting. Some of them leave, some of them staying. During this entire time, there's this one German guy that kind of nobody likes because this is after World War <laughs> World War II and mm-hmm. they're all sort of like that there's that German guy and he's kind of off on his own and he's everybody is sweating and everybody's like you know miserable and everybody's down and we're all going to die and this German guy is like shaving and he's like kind of <laughs> it's funny actually and he's making notes and walking around the plane and at a certain point he says let's rebuild the plane and he, He's and, and it's a crazy idea,
0: yeah. It's not something you would think of, but if
2: you could, but he's like, We can take these components of the plane and we can do this and we can get out of here. And he's like, Well, where are the men gonna be? And he's like, They're gonna hang onto the wings Whoa. as we fly out. And it's such a crazy idea, and it's gonna expel all the water they have and all the energy they have to do that to make it. And they have to make it at night. And He's worked out all the formulas on how to do it and everything. And he's like, Let's build a new aircraft out of the old aircraft that's destroyed. And I think it's one of the most heroic stories. It's, it's actually it, – thinking about it is actually moving me even now because it's, you know, uh, it's a hopeless situation. And yet he transforms the airplane that's already destroyed into something new that can work, single purpose though it may be. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, uh, like that spirit – of reinvention, I think is just so exciting and interesting. And that's what it's like making a movie. And you have those moments of despair when you've disassembled it or when everything's in a wreck and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh God, how are we going to build it again? And how is it going to work? And anyhow.
0: It's actually really funny because you talk about canon. And back in like 2008, I was in eighth grade and Twilight came out. I was really, really interested in the Twilight books. Yeah. Actually, you and I went to go see the Twilight movies together yeah, because I, I you're an amazing you. father. You're an amazing father to go watch the Twilight movies with me. They're not. I mean, you know, they're they're fun. Yeah, they're but fun. But I, I remember I was so is, mad. It was,
2: was it? It's not the first time with the the wolves talking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, you! <laughs> I think we said laugh. <last. laughs> there is Roger as a werewolf. Yes. Um I just remember that I was so mad as like a 13 14 year old girl that the tables in the books they're square and in the movie they're round and I was so upset. And I remember you told me, "Don't worry, Gala. the book is always going to be there." Yeah. Like, you don't have to be upset about the shape of the table. The book is
2: not going away.
0: The book's not going away. The
2: original form is there. It will always, to be always there. satisfy you in its original form. And all we're talking about doing is an interpretation. I mean, how many interpretations of Batman have we seen now? There's a new one uh, with Robert Pattinson. And from what I can tell, it's the exact same story, just told yet another way. Yeah. And so. Um,
0: That's an adaptation. But that was something that stuck with me and that actually really helped me as grow into a young woman that loves movies is that the original material will always be there for me to enjoy. I can enjoy the adaptation, even if it's wildly different from the original material, because they're just two different things. I haven't really,
2: I I think it's really interesting. um, You told me about how in anime and manga. Yeah. In
0: in Japan, how sometimes the, the light novel or the manga partially because they run at the same time, they'll diverge and they'll go into two completely different stories.
2: And that's Sometimes actually and that's actually welcomed. And, like, actually welcomed. and it's actually welcome because like you the can fan enjoy... base is actually one like because they're used to it. Yeah, that's just part of the experience. It's like, oh, we're going to see an expanded universe in that, or we're going to see a different angle of how yeah, everything is exactly. And, and I think and that's or a really... separate
0: storyline that doesn't exist in one place will appear in another. Yeah, I mean,
2: one may as well get angry about the fact that Quentin changed history in *Inglorious Bastards*. You know, it's like. You're supposed to do stuff like that. That's it's, it's a, a movie. movie. It's for fun. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie. Let's fantasize. And also,
0: actually, completely <laughs> Let's side. Let's go in other directions. Yeah, completely Let's, sidebar. I was watching Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, and we were, my film club, it was our one-year anniversary, and we were saying, oh, next year we'll watch Day of the Dead because it's like the next one. And then we started looking into the history of Night of the Living Dead. And Romero and his writing partner for Night of the Living Dead. John Russo. John Russo. They had a split. Yeah. And then one got to keep
2: Living Dead. Well, they both kept the right and title for for remake, like in different ways. One has
0: Living Dead and one just has Dead. But it's really because Dan O'Bannon went on to direct the the, the Russo one. But what's fascinating to me is those are both canonically sequels to the first movie.
2: Both of them. Both of them
0: (laughs) are canonically sequels to the first movie. And you can't argue that they're not because they both are.
2: Yeah, well, both of them have legit fathers. It's uh, just yeah. like
0: two different children. But I just thought it's a fascinating like tree when you start looking at that. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Yeah, and th- I think they made a sequel to the Return of the Living Dead as well. I think
0: they did, but I like they I kept running that with yet. that. And
2: then furthermore, uh, Tom Savini, who did the makeup effects, and on – and who's
0: in a. Dawn of the Dead. Yeah,
2: in da- and in Dawn of the Dead and did the special makeup effects for it, he um, also directed a remake of Night of the Living Dead, mostly to retain the original copyright on yeah. the on the film.
0: But I just thought that was so interesting. because his
2: his version is really good. It's a really, really good version. It's really brilliant. Like, he's, he really made a – like, he didn't just go in and just say, oh, we're just going to, like, you know, up the copyright by making a – by cr- cranking out a turddy,
0: a cruddy movie. No,
2: he went and he tried to make the very, very best, you know, kind of uh, Tom Savini. Uh, and, and especially when you look at his like I have his storyboards, which um, at home, which he gave me because he storyboarded the entire movie. And especially when you see the storyboards and you realize what his vision is.
0: So, mm-hmm. Before I close up shop for today, I've got a letter from a listener saying thank you. This question comes from a surprise. Dear Quentin Roger Angala, I don't have a question. I just want to say thank you for discussing Delirium. My father, Nick Panuzis, played Charlie in the movie. Ah. Unfortunately, he passed away when I was a baby, so I never got to ask him about Delirium or his adventures in acting. His only other notable acting gig was as Harry Dean Stanton's Stand-In, the other St. Louis movie, Escape from New York. Oh. Over the years, I have collected posters and memorabilia from Delirium. I joked with my wife that I am hesitant to hang them up because I don't want my eighth-month-old son to think his grandfather was a psycho killer. It's so wild that Delirium is getting a second life. First, it got a re-release from Severin Films and 88 Films. Then it got a cool plug on Video Archive's podcast. That's awesome for a little regional movie. Thanks again, Peter Panuzis.
2: That's excellent. Who
0: sent some photos. Peter, so. oh.
2: Peter, you are most welcome. You are most welcome. And thank you.
0: We love bringing to light movies that need to find their audiences. If you didn't catch our conversation on Delirium, head over to episode two so you don't miss a thing. And that's the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Video Archives After Show. Next week, join Quentin and Roger as they pull one VHS from the shelves of the archives. Want to know ahead of time what we'll be watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. Featuring the actor that started the Sundance Film Festival, the film in question features wing-walking on biplanes. If you'll excuse me, I've got one last run to make. I'm Gala Avery, signing out. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's Project Avery dot org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.